TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Protecting the Forests of the World, Professor William Muma and Stuart Scott. Professor Muma wrote in 2021, Humanity puts out 11 billion tons of carbon each year. Amazingly, less than half ends up in the atmosphere. NASA satellite data and research show that a bit more than half of the remaining 6 billion tons of carbon are going into forests, plants, wetlands, and soils. The other 40 to 45 percent is being absorbed by the oceans. However, the extraordinary capacity of forests to absorb carbon is being undermined by worldwide logging and clear-cutting, which ironically turns forests, that could be our best protection from climate disaster, into yet another powerful source of greenhouse gases. Professor William Muma and Stuart Scott first met in 2019 at the COP25 in Madrid, Spain, That's the annual United Nations Conference on Climate Change. That was the time when 11,000 scientists urged world leaders to act to prevent climate collapse. And Muma and Scott shared that sense of urgency. Their conversation was titled Humanity's Mortality Moment. On this recording, Stuart Scott introduces Professor Muma and begins with a tongue-in-cheek welcome to COP25, the 25th annual ritual of kicking the can down the road. Thank you for coming and watching another Scientist's Morning Program. I'm your host, Stuart Scott, along with Regina Valdez, and we're coming to you live from Madrid, Spain, COP25, the 25th annual ritual of kicking the can down the road. Today's guest with us, Dr. William Muma. He's Emeritus Professor of International Environmental Policy at the Fletcher School of Tufts University. He's also board chair for the Woods Hole Research Center. And he's lead author in five of the IPCC reports, as well as one of five co-authors of the World Scientist's Warning of a Climate Emergency This is a very, very important paper, and Dr. Muma's here today. May I call you, Bill? Yes, please do. <laughs> to tell us about the paper and its contents. And today's program we're calling Humanity's Mortality Moment. Thank you very much, Stuart. I want to talk to you about responding to the climate emergency with natural solutions. We state that scientists have a moral obligation to really to let the public know what's actually happening. And we've joined together in looking at all of the data and information and have decided that it is necessary to declare this a climate emergency. So here are the things we have to do. We have to obviously first transform our economy, get rid of fossil fuels and other things that we're burning, putting into the atmosphere, biofuels and various things. And get, get rid of the subsidies first. Absolutely, get rid of the subsidies first. We are, you can't, it's, it's unbelievable that we're paying people to put more carbon into the atmosphere, country after country after country. We need to reduce the black carbon that comes from some of that combustion, diesels 
uh, coal, burning wood for uh, electricity, and uh, methane, nitrous oxide from agriculture, and uh, some industrial chemicals. We need to protect the natural systems that are already removing well more than half of what we put in every year of carbon dioxide and uh, increase the capacity of natural systems to remove carbon dioxide. Our food habits for the whole world have a profound effect in terms of emissions. They emit carbon dioxide, they emit nitrous oxide from fertilizer, they emit methane from primarily animal husbandry. And we need to shift our food and diet away from animal and towards plant. Um, we have an economy that is geared to, it, almost, it could not be better designed to emit carbon dioxide and other gases into the atmosphere than it is. I mean, it's just amazing how we have become so reliant on fossil fuels. So we need to reduce the activities that, uh, that release those emissions and uh, these heat trapping gases and create a carbon free economy. It's the economy, our current mainstream growth economic system that is causing our doom. It's incenting us to consume the planet more and more quickly. It's an insane system, but they can't get off it because if they stop that exponential growth, the Ponzi scheme falls apart. It is a bit of a Ponzi scheme and it takes all kinds of uh, interventions to keep it going from central banks and so forth. So it is not just a market system running itself like it was promised to be way back in the 18th century and it needs a lot of work to keep it running. And then finally, there's the human population. We're adding 80 million people a year to the planet's uh, human population. There are economists that will tell us that we have to keep having more population growth to keep the economy going. I find it absolutely bizarre that my role in society is to keep the economy going and it's women's role in the society to keep having babies to keep the economy going. Does the economy serve us or do we serve the economy? So one of the ways, things we have to do is to do this in a way that will keep society intact. And one of the things we can do is, is to provide uh, education for women, all of, girls all over the world and provide women and girls with information about managing their own fertility. So why would 11,000 scientists agree to declare a climate emergency? Being a scientist, I can tell you, we're a pretty a contentious lot. We argue a lot about the science. Did you measure that right? Did you do this? To get 11,000 scientists, to get 11 scientists to agree is really remarkable. To get 11,000 scientists to agree is, is just extraordinary. So we use the term emergency deliberately. We felt that terms like uh, crisis and disaster are not very helpful. They simply leave you feeling depressed because there's nothing you can do about it. Not, there's not even a possibility suggested in those terms. But emergency means something is, 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 is something dangerous is about to happen and you can work to prevent it or you're going to have to respond to a mess afterwards. So as scientists has, have improved their capacity and, and uh, had more time to gather more information about what's happening in the world, uh, we've come to re recognize that abrupt and irreversible changes are coming at lower and lower increases in temperature. The World Meteorological Organization just announced, no big surprise, that despite all the things that we say we're doing, 
carbon dioxide emissions reached a new high, and so did a lot of other gases, methane and other heat-trapping gases. So here's the point that people really need to understand. We must simultaneously reduce combustion emissions and all other sources of emissions of carbon dioxide and from methane and from all these other heat-trapping gases. And simultaneously, we must increase the removal of atmospheric carbon dioxide by nature-based solutions. It's not either or, it's both and. And this number, this business net emissions, what that means is the difference between what we put in and what nature takes out. A term is commonly used, and you'll hear it is, and you'll see it on the signs around here, carbon neutral. Oh, that sounds so good. That's not a scientific term. Carbon neutral is not the same as zero carbon. Carbon neutral means someone else at some other time, at some other place, removes carbon so I can emit more. If maybe, you, maybe, because this is an accounting system that they came up with in there to allow wealthy countries to pollute more while they supposedly plant more trees in Indonesia, which are probably harvested five or 10 years down the road. That's right. I mean, it, and, it, and it's not only Indonesia, it's happening in the United States and it's happening in Europe. So how do we remove more carbon dioxide from the atmosphere? Well, trees grow. And you see a large tree on the left and you see a skinny tree on the right. Which tree has the most carbon in it? Half of the weight of wood is carbon. All right, the big one, obviously. Which tree absorbs more carbon dioxide every year? The big one. The foresters will tell you, we've got to get rid of those big trees. They're about to kill over and emit carbon dioxide. The one you see there is about 160 years old. It's in where I live, Massachusetts. It's the tallest tree in the whole northeastern United States. It's, it's uh, something in the neighborhood of 53 meters high. It's pretty good size. That's only half the height of the redwoods in California, by the way. But it's a big tree. And um, these trees are remnants of what was once an entire forest like that. We just have remnants, but we have them. And there are studies now showing that we have been ma uh, managing our forests in such a way that if we manage them differently, they could absorb twice as much carbon dioxide as they already do now. Remember, forests and wetlands and the oceans are currently removing more than half of what we put in every year. That's amazing. That's really nice to have friends like that. We would really be in literally beyond hot water because the seas would have risen and the temperatures would be much warmer if it weren't for nature taking this carbon dioxide out. So what should we do? Well, if we were to allow more trees to get to be big trees and older trees, we would not only reduce forest fires, we would store much more carbon. And the process for that, proforestation management, allows trees to reach their biological potential for carbon storage. So the takeaway message is reduce emissions of heat trapping gases immediately as anything you can do, any change in behavior. Protect more of our existing forests and let them grow. We've got to set aside some of our forests and say, let them grow. And if we do that, here's a forest, a picture of a forest in the Northeast US, and you see those little trees? Those are about to become big trees over the next 50 years, but they will be adding a lot starting tomorrow morning.
You heard part of a conversation between Professor William Muma and Stuart Scott. They spoke about humanity's mortality moment in 2019 at the COP25 in Madrid, Spain. Since then, logging of world forests accelerated. Not just in Brazil and Indonesia. Carbon emissions from logging in the U.S., Canada, and Europe have also been rising. Muma and Scott spoke again in 2021 on Facing Future TV. Here's Professor William Muma. It is a climate emergency. We have to act quickly. And the only thing that's going to turn off the feedbacks is basically lowering the temperature. The only way to lower the temperature is to stop putting heat trapping gases in the atmosphere and find more ways to take them out. And uh, you hear a lot of talk about planting trees and technologies that will do this. And uh, I'm sure those are all good things to do, uh, but they won't make much of a difference in the next 30 years when we really have to get hold of this problem and bring it to heel. And so I've been working with colleagues who work uh, on the carbon cycle of forests and colleagues who work on the carbon cycle of uh, wetlands. Those are doing this remarkable thing. I mean, if you look at the amount of carbon dioxide we emit from all everything we do, from um, burning all of our fossil fuels, driving with oil and heating with coal and electricity and everything, and then you look at the amount that we do from, we, we put in the atmosphere from clearing forests and degrading wetlands, which release a huge amount of carbon dioxide that took thousands of years to accumulate. Mm -hmm. That's about 11 billion tons a year that the world is putting out. Mm -hmm. Remarkably, the increase in the atmosphere every year is less than half that, it's 4.9 billion tons. Where's all that excess going then? Well, yeah, where is it going? Well, uh, you know, a bit more than half of it is going into plants on land, like forests, and into plants in, in wetlands and being stored in soils. And the other um, sort of 40 or 45 percent of it is being absorbed by the oceans. That's great in terms of climate, but it's terrible for the oceans because when you dissolve carbon dioxide in the ocean, it makes it acidic. Acidic oceans are not as productive. In fact, they're destroying coral reefs, they're destroying anything that has a shell, and uh, the problem gets worse and worse and worse. So the sooner we can increase uh, the uptake of carbon and the accumulation of that carbon in uh, plants and soils, the better off we are in the oceans and in the atmosphere. We begin to, to turn things around rapidly. If we do it simultaneously while reducing our emissions, we can get to this goal in the time frame that we need. You know, the alternative is not to get there, in which case then it is a kind of a hopeless situation. But I don't think it is hopeless in principle. I don't think it's hopeless in terms of what we can convince people to do. But we've had a, a bad run of uh, poor uh, leadership at the uh, political level. Uh, you know, we could add up the, uh, the extra amount of, uh, that, that, would, that has occurred. Although ironically, uh, our U.S. emissions have uh, come down a little bit in the last few years, and it has nothing to do with public policy. It all has to do with economics, that coal is more expensive than solar-generated electricity. So coal plants are being shut down. They're, an existing coal plant is more expensive electricity than does a new solar panel plant. 
So we've aligned, finally, we've aligned the economics uh, with the uh, climate solutions. And, um, you know, when we, when we built our house, I discovered that one out of every 700 panels in Massachusetts was on my house at that year in 2000. And, and How many panels do you have? Oh, we had, we had about, uh, I don't know, it was 30, 36 or something like that. Uh, but it was, it, you know, so I, I thought, that, well, that's interesting. Uh, today, the denominator has grown mightily. Uh, I've added a few, but, you know, we have many, a much smaller fraction than that now, for, which is really a good thing. So go to other, other interventions. Going beyond that, I mean, uh, one of the things we've discovered in terms of, uh, of what are called natural climate solutions it is to, first of all, protect the accumulated carbon that we have in forests and in soils and in wetlands and in grasslands. And then it occurred to me a few years ago, what if we could increase that? What if we could increase those rates? And then a bunch of research began to show that we could be storing twice as much carbon in our forests as we do. And the reason we don't is because the way we manage them. We, we manage forests to keep them young. And young little trees, we now know, don't hold much carbon. And I began looking into this and uh, working with, uh, with a colleague who, who measures trees. And we discovered that uh, there are some remnants even here in New England that's been, we've been cutting down trees in New England now for 400 years, ever since the pilgrims arrived on, uh, at Plymouth Rock. And uh, lo and behold, there are still some, some older trees. A few of them are pre-settlement from the Europeans. And uh, so we can see what happens if you let them keep growing. And uh, what we've discovered is, for example, um, in this one, one, one set of measurements we did, we, we found this uh, grove of probably close, you know, 160 to 200 year old white pines. So that doesn't go back to the beginning, but it's, you know, it's, yeah. they're, they're, they're reasonably old trees they're still putting on carbon. He's been measuring some of these trees since 1992. They get taller and more importantly, they get bigger around. They actually put on carbon by the cube of- That's right, of the measure The diameter of the trunk, you've got the cross section, which is squared, and then yep. you've got the height or the bulk, which is, linear. Which is the That's right. proportional to the cube. Yep, and so a very small increment in the diameter or the radius, if you prefer, pi r squared. There it is, you know, it just, it, it's growing rapidly. Even if it's a thin shell of a cylinder, it's a lot of carbon. And then if it goes up 170 feet, like some of these older trees do, and that's all growing by this quarter of an inch or whatever it is, it adds up to a lot of carbon every year. So we, we measured trees, uh, stands of, of these uh, trees in, at different ages in forest here in, in, uh, in Western uh, Massachusetts. And what we discovered is we said, well, you know, we hear all the time, well, we're, we're managing our forest sustainably. So we, we, we never cut more than grows in a year. So that's fine. The problem with that is we don't need to be keeping it constant. We need to be increasing it, right? If we really want to address this problem, we have to have trees growing more, adding more carbon. By the way, half of the weight of wood is carbon. Mm. So just to keep that in mind, it varies a little bit from species to species. I got it. You know, sort of plus or minus two or three percent from half. Mm. 
That's in the in 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 the the, the the trunk of the tree, which we all see. It's in the branches, and it's in the roots that we don't see. And in many trees, the amount that's in the branches and the roots adds about 30% to what's in the trunk. And when we harvest a tree, we often just can't use, uh, the branches don't make good boards. The roots are never harvested. They're left to either decay or they're taken to the mill and they're burned for energy. And that releases carbon dioxide right away. And then you have to cut the tree. The, it's a round tree and you want a, you want a, square, a square thing piece to work with. So you shave off those, those side pieces. So you have the wooden slabs that go. So seldom is the amount of carbon that's in the wood that goes into building things as much as half of the wood that was in the standing tree. And then when you process it and you make sawdust, and you make a product and you cut off the, the corners and all that kind of thing, it's maybe only 40% of what was originally in the tree ends up in a, a wood product. Mm. So um, this argument that we can, we can store a lot of carbon in wood products is simply, yes, we can, although we did a study that showed in Oregon, since the beginning of forestry, which is 1900 through 2015, so basically 115 years, we asked the question, where is the original carbon that was stored in the trees that were cut over that whole period today? And it turns out, yes, some of it is still in long-lived products like houses, but that was only 19% of the carbon. 65% of the carbon is in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide, mm. and 16% is in landfills, where it will decay and either make carbon dioxide or methane, which are both heat-trapping gases. Mm. So we have this huge legacy. I mean, it's something like a quarter or a 30% or something of all the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is from deforestation and land degradation, releasing carbon from the soils. Mm. Well, we've got to put, put stuff that back where it belongs. And the way to do that is basically to let trees grow. And it's the largest trees that store the most carbon. So let them grow, yep. Let them grow. And we gave that a name because we hear about deforestation, which is cutting down forests. We hear about reforestation, which is replanting forests. And we hear about afforestation, which is planting trees where they weren't growing before. But there was no name for letting trees grow. And so we coined the term proforestation because forestation means to grow forests. And so proforestation is in favor of growing forests. <laughs> and uh, study after study shows, again, we just did one in Oregon where we have all the data in six national forests, only 3% of the trees are bigger than 21 inches in diameter. And the Forest Service has not been harvesting those. They want to harvest those now. Hmm. So somebody measured something like 600,000 trees. And they found that the five species that would be harvested, that were over 21 inches in diameter, only accounted for 3% of the trees. But they held 42% of the carbon. And if you looked at the trees that were more than 30 inches, in other words, the biggest of those 21 inch plus trees, they were only six-tenths of a percent of the trees, but they held 19% of the carbon. So it's a disproportionate amount in the biggest trees. So we need to protect those and then let 
the next generation of trees become big trees. That's how we're going to get there. That's too abstract. You said we need to protect those. I yes. want you to be spell it out. What is who is the we, and how do we protect those? Okay, I would say we we the public, the American public. Uh, should insist that the forests that are storing the most carbon and will store the most carbon in the coming decades should be designated as carbon reserves. And in doing so, we get a lot of other benefits. We get more biological diversity. We get more water management. We, we, we get less runoff. We get less soil erosion. Uh, we get um, all kinds of, of additional benefits uh, from having these large forests filled with large trees. Here's the other thing is, there, there are a lot of private forest landowners. Less than half of them actually own those forests for the purpose of producing wood and revenues. They make very little money off of it. It would be possible to pay those people who do not want to cut their trees a small fee every year to keep their trees growing. Mm -hmm. And what's the amount? Well, it don't have to be just one cent more than what they would get for cutting it down. Oh, the return on that over the, whatever it is, 50 years it'll take to grow the forest back. And so it's, it's, a very, it's probably the least costly thing we can do other than energy efficiency in our homes. That is increasing the, you know, uh, the changing light bulbs, the, the insulating our homes. Double pane windows, the uh, insulation in the attic, yes. All yeah, that. right, right. It's, I think, important to understand that there are these multiple levels at which we can act. And um, what is interesting is right now, there are more corporations that are going 100% renewable energy uh, than there are governments. And they're doing it for economic reasons. And hey, it looks good. Why not? It becomes the most economical thing to do. And more people are doing this, but we keep seeing barriers put up by state governments, uh, by uh, local governments. Uh, I, I learned this uh, living in Germany, that uh, the cost, the installation cost of solar panels in Germany is half of what it is in the United States. Mm. And a lot of that is because of the process costs that are put in place in order to discourage this from happening. What do you because mean the process costs? Like what? Getting permits, uh, the permit, the cost of permits is ridiculous in, in most, most communities. So the number of, um, you know, community associations that don't allow solar panels because they don't like the way they look, it, it goes on and on. It, you know, it'll, it, it, it may be more important how you feel than how it looks on your house in terms of the future of climate change and the consequences, the weather consequences, which we're all experiencing. Uh, what fools we mortals be. <laughs> Thank you very much today for all your time. And, okay. And we'll be communicating by email and Zoom and we'll be in touch. Okay. Thank you. you all right. That was Stuart Scott saying goodbye to his guest, Professor William Muma. He's Professor Emeritus of International Environmental Policy at Tufts University. This last conversation with Stuart Scott was published on the YouTube channel of Facing Future TV on March 11, 2021. Stuart Scott was founder and executive producer of Facing Future TV. 
he died of cancer at his home in Hawaii on July 15, 2021. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. Look at the newest programs or the podcast page. While you're there, you can subscribe to weekly free podcasts. Our email address is tuc at tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelarden. Thank you for listening. <laughs>